All right, Matthew 23. It is, man, it's a joy and a privilege to be able to stand in front of you guys and do this. I certainly don't take it lightly, but it's a joy. The title of today's sermon is called Lament and Compassion. Lament is not a word that we normally use today. Uh, Hopefully you recall that in the Old Testament there's a book called Lamentations. Lament means a passionate expression of grief or sorrow. And you're going to see that in the text today, Matthew chapter 23, starting with verse 29, and we'll go to the end of the chapter. Let's read this, and then we'll ask God to bless his word. Matthew 23, starting with verse 29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our father, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered prophets. Fill up, then, the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Verse 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we have assurance that every single one of your words accomplishes every single one of your purposes. And so, as we have read your word today, we pray it would bless us as its hearers. Lord, and as we seek to honor and glorify you by diving in a little deeper, God, our hope and prayer is not to encourage just knowledge for the sake of knowledge, understanding for the sake of understanding. Lord, those things will puff up in pride by themselves. Our hope, Lord, is that we further our knowledge of you in order to humble ourselves before the King of all. We thank you for your Son, and as we have heard his words today, um, may they pierce every part of us that needs to be pierced. In his name we pray. Amen. So in Matthew chapter 23, we have considered already Jesus' words to the Pharisees and the scribes, and we've been doing kind of the hard work of asking God to break our hearts because of how much we are the same, right? It it would be no good to us to read these things and simply shake our heads at the Pharisees and you know, blame them for blowing it with not turning that light onto our own life and into our own hearts. 
we see that Jesus has rebuked these guys just over and over again for specifically recently for dressing up the outside, the, the exterior, making it, you know, good to look at, but all the while just being totally content to have the filth and the rottenness and the deadness on the inside. And Jesus said, guys, that is not the way. The Pharisees were just as we often do it. They were justifying their own sin instead of fleeing from it. Just like we do. These common sins of, I mentioned some last time uh, I spoke a couple weeks ago, uh, of gossip, pride, anger, resentment, bitterness, gluttony, slander. These things tend to be fairly acceptable sins in our culture, aren't they? And yet the Bible specifically, God specifically says, Christians, you are to have no part of that. Those things are of the world and you are not of the world. You are called out, which is what being a part of the church means. So, brothers and sisters, I'm pleading with you this morning that if we make every effort to cover our sin and hide our need for Christ, I think there's the distinct reality there that we have not understood the gospel because it it has not changed the way that we view our sin. Because when we understand the gospel and how it relates to me and my sin, it changes us. And if we don't see it that way, I think we may have missed it. If we're sensing a disconnect between our head and our heart, what we say and who we really are, I I think the solution is not just more rules or more knowledge, more book smarts, more training, more programs. These things aren't wrong, mind you, but they're not the key to reviving our dead hearts. Only God is. More knowledge, more programming does not and cannot open our ears and our eyes and our hearts. Only God can. God is the one who sets his spirit ablaze in our hearts, not strict adherence to a set of religious rules. I've said that multiple times over the last few weeks, and I don't think I can say it enough. Because our tendency is to start pulling out our, our list And going through the motions. That's our default. That's not what pleases God, brothers and sisters. It's just not. So if, if we're realizing, as you might this morning, as I have in studying this, if we realize that there might be a little Pharisee in us, own it. Admit it. It's okay to be honest with the Lord. He he knows it anyway. The solution here is not just more of the same thing. This didn't work in the past. I'm just going to do the same thing and hope for a different outcome. That's not the solution. It never has and it never can be. The solution is more of Jesus. It's more of of fixing our eyes not on the things of this world, but on Christ himself. So today we hear Jesus' final woe. So we've been going through the woes to the Pharisees, and this is his final one. And it is just, it's just heartbreaking as, as this wraps up. And then his lament over the people of Israel. Um, it's a bit hard today to talk about these things 
Because the depth of the sin in our human hearts is revealed yet again. But it's a good day, I believe, because Jesus reminds us of his enduring compassion. And I want us to keep that in mind as we move forward. Now look at the, look at the, the text. It says that they build the tombs and decorate the monuments. So this was Jesus talking about the Pharisees. They were, they were putting a lot of energy, a lot of effort, a lot of money and resources into making the graveyard pretty. That's what it boils down to. They were, they were making the graveyard pretty. They were claiming then, um, in a very prideful way, as you can see from the, from the text, they were claiming that they would have responded differently were they with the prophets back long ago with their fathers. They say, we would have responded differently to all their war- warnings and all the things that they said. We wouldn't have acted as our fathers did. And then Jesus keenly points out, you guys are just admitting your fault and your part in all of this because you come from the same bloodline. You're doing the same thing here. Listen to Matthew Henry about this. He says, sometimes we think if we had lived when Christ was upon the earth, that we should not have despised and rejected him as men did then. Yet Christ in his spirit, in his word, in his ministers is still no better treated. In building monuments to the prophets that their fathers killed, they as I said, confirm their lineage and of rebellion. And honestly, as Jesus then goes to point out, it, it confirms their thirst for blood. They testify against themselves, Jesus says, in this way. The scribes and the Pharisees here, they weren't the ones, and I want you to hear this, these people that Jesus was physically speaking to were not the ones who picked up the stones or swung the sword that killed the prophets. But the sin nature and the hardness of heart they possessed had been passed down from their fathers onto them, and they were in the process then of passing it down to their children, and it was all playing out the same way. But now they were killing the prophet, Jesus, the Messiah, the great prophet himself. So Jesus refers to the righteous blood of Abel, and uh, you can see that in verse 35, 34 and 35. Um, he talks about Abel and Zechariah. Um, these, it's a really interesting study, and I'd encourage you to do that more if you have the time. But these are representatives of righteous blood from the beginning of the Old Testament to the end of the Old Testament. The beginning and end of the messengers sent to preach the truth and display righteousness to the people of Israel. And how did they respond? They killed them. Oftentimes in very dramatic fashion. The time period from Abel to Zechariah covers the span from the first to the last murders recorded in the, recorded in the Old Testament. Now our um, English Bible isn't laid out chronologically. And so um, you may be thinking, well, you know, Zechariah is not the last book of the, the, the Old Testament. Um, but in as far as history, Jewish history goes, th- this is how it went. Um, Abel's murder, if you remember, is recorded in Genesis chapter 4, right at the beginning. And according to the Hebrew arrangement of the Old Testament, Zechariah was the last martyr killed in Second Chronicles 24, verse 20. 
The Pharisees, if you'll notice in Matthew 23, they did not dispute this at all when Jesus brought it up. They didn't try to argue with him. Uh, they were in agreement with the facts that Jesus was giving them. They just simply tried to deny that they would act the same way. They didn't want to believe that they would do the exact same thing. They claimed innocence, but it wasn't going to be long before the blood of Jesus would be spilled by their very hands. So Jesus comments on this, and he says, Fill up, then, the measure of your father's. Fill up, then, the measure of your father's. Fill up is a statement um, uh, of permission. It's not a command. Jesus wasn't forcing their hand or necessarily even egging them on in here. It's as if Jesus was saying, I'm not going to fight with you anymore. I contend with you no longer. I leave you to yourselves. Do what you're going to do. And it wasn't only Jesus' blood that would be shed. Uh, he, he lists here in Matthew 23, he talks about uh, prophets in verse 34, that uh, they're going to kill, crucify, flog in the synagogues, and persecute from town to town. So Jesus' blood wasn't the only blood that was spilled by these this generation. There were people that went out after his death and resurrection and ascension that we find in the book of Acts, recorded there. It tells the story of the early church and the persecution by Jewish religious leaders. By sending these, these prophets and wise men and scribes and apostles and evangelists, God gave these hypocrites the opportunity to prove themselves by the very deeds they were denying they would take part in. There was opportunity here to respond differently But as Jesus predicted, and we all know from history and biblical history, these people would would kill both the Jameses. They would crucify Andrew and Peter. They would stone Stephen and Paul. They would scourge Peter, John, and Paul. And others, it says, they would persecute from city to city. They were always, it seems, hot on the heels of Christians who were preaching the gospel, weren't they? Persecuting from city to city. They were always right on their heels trying to get them to be quiet about this Jesus. And by doing this, they were filling up the measure of their father's sin. But here's the difference. God wasn't about to tolerate it anymore. He wasn't about to let it keep going much longer. And this this kind of situation I think is interesting. It actually plays itself out throughout biblical history at various times. I just want to touch real quickly on one or more of those. In Genesis 15, 16, you don't have to turn there, but God told Abram that he would delay his wrath on the people of Israel for four generations. So, in essence, 400 years until it says, in that verse, the sins of the Amorites were complete. It's the same kind of language here, until their sins were filled up and then God's wrath would come down. So the fourth generation, the Amorites had filled up the sins of their people, and when it reached its full measure, guess what? God's wrath was unleashed on them. And guess what Israel did? Yeah! All right, God, get them. They celebrated, because God's wrath was being poured out on their enemies. They loved to see that. The same principle of God's righteous judgment was inflicted to different nations at different times in Scripture. 
But now it was being applied to Israel itself. The people were not standing up and cheering. Jesus is pronouncing this condemnation, this woe on the Jewish leaders of that generation. Matthew twenty-seven twenty-five says, in just days from this conversation, uh, Matthew twenty-seven twenty-five says, they would say, his blood be on us and on our children. These same people would say, let his blood, talking of Jesus, let his blood be on us and on our children. So Jesus borrows some language here in Matthew 23 from John the Baptist, and he uses the words serpents, brood of vipers, and he warns them of their inevitable end if they do not repent. If you continue, Jesus is saying, if you continue down this path, this is your end. It's not a likely outcome. It's not a possible outcome. It is definite. This is what's going to happen. And I, there's almost like this tangible reality in the situation that's recorded here. I think a big reason that Jesus spoke so forcefully and so harshly to the Pharisees was because there was so much at stake here. There was so much at stake. The Pharisees' eternal destiny was on the line, and they didn't even know it. They didn't even see it. But look at verse 37 through 39 of Matthew 23, verse 37 through 39. Think back to that as you're panning through it. Look at what Jesus is saying. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See, your house is left to, do, to you desolate. Their house was left desolate because of their unwillingness to come to the Father. And the reality of our situation needs to become pretty clear to us today. One of the verses that, uh, that I, as a leader, learned in Awana several years ago um, has played a major role in how I speak with kids about the gospel. And it's John 3, 36. You're, feel free to turn there if you want. We're not going to spend a lot of time there, but just so you can read it. John 3.36 is an important verse when it comes to understanding God's righteous wrath and where we sit in relation to it. Okay? So if you're panning that verse, you recognize that you are under the wrath of God. You and I, created beings, are under the wrath of God. And sin has this really tricky way of convincing us that we're really not sinning, right? You guys ever justified your sin that way? We talked a little bit about this last week. Well, that's not really a sin. Everybody does it. It's okay. It's not really that bad. Or even if we do acknowledge sin, it convinces us that it's just not really that bad. It's okay. Maybe it is a sin, but it's just a white lie. You know, it's different than a different kind of lie. But here's the truth of the situation. Sin that is not dealt with makes you blind to your own sin. Do you see how that works? If there's sin in my heart that I do not deal with, it blinds me to the fact that there is sin in my heart. 
And it's the same way for you. And we, we saw this played out with Cain early on. And it took him to the end of murder. And we saw that all through the Old Testament, as Jesus just talks about, all the way through Zechariah, who they murdered. Because sin makes us blind to our own sin. Um, how many of you guys have ever ridden a bike? Most hands are going to go up, right? Um, and I jumped on a bike out in the country here when we moved. And it's so different than riding it in the city on the concrete and nice level areas, you know. Um, but if you've ever been on a bike, um, you've probably wrecked your bike, right? Because it kind of comes with the territory. Um, who has broken a bone from wrecking a bike? Eric's got his hand like this. <laughs> like he's ashamed. I think you might be the only one here, so sorry, man. Um, but imagine that you're riding your bike and you're heading for a big rock. Okay? Um, you're heading for a big rock. And I'm not talking about a rock. I'm talking about a rock. Have you been to Elephant Rocks State Park in southern Missouri? I'm talking about a rock. So you're riding your bike, and you're heading for a big rock, and you know it's going to be bad. It's going to be bad. So here's the thing. If your eyes are open, there's a very good chance, hopefully, if you've got much experience on a bike, you can steer away from that big rock and, and avoid that, um, that bad outcome. Right? If you've got your eyes open, then you should be able to avoid that, that rock. But let's just say that, that something co- is covering your eyes. You know, maybe, you know, cause all of us wear helmets when we ride bikes, I'm sure. But let's just say that maybe your helmet has fallen over your eyes and you can't see where you're going and you're headed for a big rock. Now you don't know it's there necessarily, but you can hear people who are standing by w- watching and they're saying, Hey, stop. You're heading for a big rock. So you might, even though your eyes are covered, you might be able to hear people around you warning you of the danger that's ahead. And you can, you know, put on your brakes or kind of swerve out of the way or that kind of a thing. And and you can avoid that bad outcome. But what if your helmet falls over your eyes and you kind of start to like the suspense of not being able to see where you're going? And so you're riding and you kind of like that you can't see everything. It's getting kind of exciting. And maybe you do that long enough that you almost even forget that, that you're even, your eyes are even covered. And then you, people are yelling at you. You know, they see what's happening and they're saying, hey, stop, you're heading for the rock. Don't, you know, put on your brakes. Don't hit it. Well, if, if we've enjoyed this for long enough, we maybe have forgotten that our eyes are covered. And we're saying, what are you talking about? There's nothing over my eyes. I don't mind this. This is pleasurable. This is fun. This serves my purposes. And guess what? It's coming. You're going to hit the rock. You can't focus on the road because your eyes are covered. And since you enjoy it and have forgotten that your eyes are covered, you won't believe the people that are trying to warn you. Because that's how sin works. It blinds you to your own sin, but then it also keeps you from listening to everyone else who really loves you, warn you of your sin, warn you of the inevitable outcome, which is more than running into a rock. It is an eternal destiny apart from Christ in hell. Brothers and sisters, 
It's not just the Jewish Pharisees that were like this. It's not just the outside world that's full of people who enjoy having their eyes covered. It's us in the church, and I'm fearful it's me. I'm afraid I'm like this. Because I claim that I can see clearly, even though my eyes are covered sometimes. And you're like this too. I know that. We know that about each other. But it's because of the pride within us, the pride within me, the pride within you, that we just refuse to believe the people that are standing by who genuinely care for us. We just refuse to believe that what they're telling us might actually be true. Because we're more convinced that we have the truth than that they have the truth, even though our eyes are really covered. I need to be awakened to the truth, and you do too. There is a big rock coming up, and we need to know. But the reality is that no person will escape a danger that they don't believe is there. You get that? You can say, there's a big rock coming, but if they don't believe it, they don't think there's any danger to where they're going, what they're doing. But hell is real. Jesus said it was. We tend, as I mentioned before, we tend to kind of shake our heads at the Pharisees and the scribes and just wonder how they could be so blind. How could you miss Jesus right there in front of you? But in reality, the truth is, we are they. We're them. We're the Pharisees. We have hearts that would murder the Messiah just the same as the Jews did. To think anything different than that is to flatter ourselves in the same way that the scribes and Pharisees did. John Stott said this, Before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. It's a Scottish hymn writer called Horatius Bonar, and he lived in the 1800s, and he wrote this song that I came across a couple weeks ago. It's, it's called, I See the Crowd in Pilate's Hall, and I've got the lyrics here because I want you to read along with me. I see the crowd in Pilate's Hall, their furious cries I hear, their shouts of crucify appall, their curses fill my ear. And of that shouting multitude, I feel that I am one. And in that din of voices rude, I recognize my own. I see the scourges tear his back. I see the piercing crown. And of that crowd who smite and mock, I feel that I am one. Around the cross, the throng I see. Mocking the Savior's sufferers groan, yet still my voice it seems to be as if I mocked alone. The, the last stanza here, if you couldn't tell, weighs on me. Twas I that shed the sacred blood. I nailed him to the tree. I crucified the Christ of God. I joined the mockery. This is true of me, and this is true of you. And it's not until, as John Stott said, it's not until we see this as something done by us 
that I think will really appreciate that this was something done for us. No matter how sincere, no matter how hard we try, no matter what we do, you and I have hearts that deserve the judgment of God. Absolutely deserve the judgment of God. And so I want to be clear here. God is absolutely right to punish punish sin. And he's right to punish sinners who go on remaining in rebellion to his authority. God is right to do that. You know, we hear a lot today, maybe you've thought this, I don't know, but it's, it's this phrase of, well, how can God be a loving God if he sends people to hell? And the reality is that this is a false premise to begin with. God doesn't do that. You do that. I do that. People do that. By rejecting the free gift of Christ, people do that. So God is right to punish people who remain in rebellion to his authority. We don't have to excuse God's behavior in that. We don't have to sugarcoat it to make it more palatable to the culture. God is God. And it's good that he is. Look at verse 38 in Matthew 23. He says, See, your house is left to you desolate. Jesus is referring to the temple here. The Jews thought that their heritage, they thought that the fact that they had this sacred temple meant that they would not be included in the judgment that was to come. Um, they would not be lumped in to the judgment that those heathen Gentile non-believers were going to have put on them by God. But God is not a respecter of persons. And in that I mean what Acts chapter 10 says, verse 34 and 35. It says, So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Your heritage, your bank account, your knowledge, your position in society, only those who fear God and obey him will be made new. And it's not reliant on any of those things. Guys, this is good news. Because none of us have kingly heritage. None of us deserve God's mercy. But despite our rebellion, despite all of our misguided efforts, despite all of our sin, God has made a way for you to be made whole. And this is the good news. Christ's sacrifice as the atonement for sin means that anyone who comes to God, his way will not be rejected. Instead, you'll be welcomed as a son or a daughter. Only God can think up this plan. Only God could set in motion and fulfill this plan. So I want to make sure that we notice something here wrapped up in all of this text that's actually pretty typical of God. Patience. Patience. Now parents, that is a word that I know we hesitate to even pray for because it is going to be tested. Um, and, and we have... If you've had a, if you have a kid or you've had a kid or a grandkid or I think all of us can identify with this, we need patience, but none of us display the kind of patience that God does. 
And we see it here in the text. Look at what Jesus says to these guys. After all of these woes, basically saying, here is where you're blowing it. He says, he uses this phrase, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? How's that How's that possible, you guys? After all of these things, it's as if he just rolled out this laundry list of wrong things that they were doing and had done and their wrong theology and their wrong view of God. And he says, well, how could you ever escape going to hell? And then he gives the way. I think we should read compassion in this. That's why this was titled Lament and Compassion. Because we saw that. We see the heart of God in Christ breaking over the people's sin. But we see his compassion coming to the surface here. There's love in Jesus' words here. It wasn't that Jesus was pleased and secretly satisfied that the Pharisees and the non-believers were headed to hell. God desires all men everywhere to repent. Jesus refers to himself then instead of, of a loving and protecting guardian, a mother hen. Now, I know that, you know, right off the bat, when you think of a, of a protector, you probably don't immediately think of a hen, of a chicken, right? Um, but what's, what's the point here? Uh, there's other places in the book of Psalms, especially, and where, where, you know, the care that we give, get or receive rather, the care that we receive from God is likened to, um, you know, a bird bringing its, its little ones under its wing. Um, we have chickens at home. We haven't had too many chicks, but we have chickens. And as I understand it, when the nights get cold, where do the chicks go? Underneath the, the hen's wings. Um, I have noticed that our chickens, they don't like to be out in open areas. So they'll run across the yard, and that's like the funniest thing to watch ever because uh, chickens don't really fly. So they just kind of run and flap, and it's a lot of noise, and it's really funny to me. But they'll fly across the yard. So if, if a mother hen is stuck out in the open with all of her chicks, where do they go for protection? Uh, under the wing. Um, this, this, is, this is how they protect their little ones from danger. And what it boils down to is this. If, if there's a predator flying around and there's no other way for them to get to cover, the mother hen is going to keep the little ones safe. And in essence, she's going to take the hit to keep her kids safe. If it's cold, she's going to bring them in and she's going to be cold so that they're not. She's going to sacrifice even her life for her little ones. This is a beautiful picture of Jesus because this is what he does for his people. He wanted so badly for the Jews to be gathered unto him, to be protected by him from the wrath of God and they wouldn't do it. That was what he said of them. Came across this quote. The beautiful tenderness of this verse shows that the warnings of the previous verses are the language not of human anger, but of divine justice. Jerusalem had its opportunities. They were multiplied until it seemed almost overweighted with privilege. 
But those opportunities had been neglected and despised again and again and again. And now they had grown into heavy, overwhelming judgments. What was designed as God's patience because of them rejecting it now turned into this weight of sin and guilt and condemnation on them. As, as we sit here today, I don't want us to respond the way that the Jews did to this. We see Christ on the cross taking the hit for sinners so that we don't have to suffer under the immense wrath of God, which is correct. God's wrath is rightly poured out on sin. We see Jesus taking the hit for us, and yet so many people hear it and think, I've got time. I don't have to make this decision now. Or we hear it, and we've heard it a hundred times before, and it means nothing to us, and we ignore it. Don't respond the way that the Israelites did. Their condemnation by Jesus himself was that they were not willing so we have to turn that around and we have to ask ourselves, are we willing today? Not only to be gathered up under the protection of Jesus Christ for salvation and justification, but brothers and sisters, that's where we run to every day. That's where we run to every morning, every uh, momentary trouble as James refers to them as every momentary trouble that we face, where do we run? We ought to run to our protector. We ought to run to our savior who has taken the hit so that we wouldn't have to. Don't respond with indifference. Don't respond with outright rejection. These responses will always incur the righteous judgment of God. But Jesus changed all of that. He came and he drank the full cup of the wrath of God so that all those who believe in him and follow him alone would be saved from his wrath. Christ has done it all, brothers and sisters. Every bit that it takes for us to be justified back to God, sanctified while we walk here and glorified one day in glory with him, Christ has already done your effort, your good deeds, your knocking yourself out to try to be better is not the prescription. I want us to turn in closing to John chapter 6, verse 35. John 6, verse 35. John six thirty five through 40. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I say to you, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I'll never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. Listen, Jesus is telling you the will of the Father that he fulfilled. 
This is the will, verse 39, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all those he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I'll raise him up on the last day. Working with teenagers for over a decade, I heard that phrase, what's God's will for my life? It's not just teenagers, it's adults too. What's God's will? Is it, is it not this? Now this is his will for, for Christ, but is this not, do you not play into this? If all of those who are given to Jesus will never be cast out or left out or forgotten or taken away, that can include you. You play into the will of God in Christ Jesus in that way. The prescription is not complicated. It is not a complicated process. It's boiled down here to the simple phrase, look to the Son and believe. Look to the Son and believe. And when we do this, brothers and sisters, be assured be confident, be hopeful that he will not lose you. He cannot lose you because it is the will of the Father that he won't. And if you are wrapped up in the hand of Jesus Christ and Jesus is wrapped up in the will of the Father that he will not lose you, there's nothing that's going to take you out of his hold and out of his grasp. When you set your eyes and your love and affection on Jesus, he holds you forever. Look to the sun and believe. Let's pray. Lord, we didn't pick up the hammer. But every time I think I know better than you, I drive the nails a little deeper. Every time my flesh takes over and I say something that I shouldn't, I push the crown of thorns a little deeper. It's my sin that held you there. It's the sin of those in this room that held you there. It's the sin of those Pharisees that put you there, Lord. And yet, it was your choice. We know that you could have called down a legion of angels to save you. You did not have to walk that path and yet you chose to just as the as the mother hen takes the hit. You chose to do that for your people. And every person that looks to the son and believes is included in that number. And so father, for any that may not be included in that number today that are here, Lord, I pray that they they would simply as they've heard and understood the gospel today, they would simply look to Jesus. And believe in him. And they'll have eternal life. Lord, forgive us for complicating this. But we thank you for Christ. So Lord, as, as we take this, these next few moments to sing and to worship and to reflect on all of these things that we've looked at today, Lord, um, May your spirit just be unleashed in this place to move in hearts, Lord, for your glory. 
It's our desire as your church here at Ramsey Creek to make you known, to make you known in this community, to make you known in our families, to make you known in our own hearts. And Lord, we need a touch from you to make that come about. In fact, you make that come about, not us at all. So we're asking you, Lord, to move in our hearts today as we respond to this message, to your word. Thank you for Christ. In his name we ask it. Amen.